Welcome to Living Word Church. Let's hear from Pastor Tim as he teaches us from our Pray Like Paul series. How many of you know that things aren't always as they seem? I've shared that before with you. Things aren't always as they seem. An elderly man rear-ended an expensive sports car and the enraged guy hops out of his car and comes to the man to confront him. And here's what he says. He says, look what you've done to my car. I can't believe it. You're going to have to pay me $10,000 right now or else I'm going to beat you up to a pulp. The man thought to himself, the old gentleman thought to himself, oh my, I don't have that kind of money. And he told the man, he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll call my son. He trains dolphins and he'll know what to do. So the guy thinks to himself, the, the irate man thinks to himself, trains dolphins. Trains dolphins, he's rolling his eyes. And so the man pulls his cell phone out of his coat pocket and he calls his son. And just as his son is going to pick up the phone, the man snatches the phone. The irate man, the man who's so upset, the bully snatches the phone. And he says, trains dolphins, huh? He said, your old man just ran into the back of my car and you guys are going to have to pay me $10,000 right now or I'll beat both of you up. The man on the other end of the line says, I'll be there in 10 minutes. He says calmly. In exactly 10 minutes, a Jeep pulls up. A man hops out and he pulverizes the bully. I mean, he beats him, leaving him in a heap on the side of the road. He walks up to his father and he said, Dad, you okay? And the dad says, yes. He says, how many times do I have to tell you, Dad, I don't train dolphins. I train seals, Navy seals. Things aren't always as they seem, right? If you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Ephesians in chapter 1, and we'll begin reading in verse 15. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 15. While you're turning there, let me tell you that I love the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is one of my favorite books in all of the Bible, especially in the New Testament. And the reason I love it so is because it highlights the believer's identity in Christ. And if you've been to any of the studies that I've done, you know how important it is not only to know what you believe, but to know the great wealth that you possess through a relationship with Jesus Christ. I love the way the book of Ephesians is laid out in the first three chapters Paul talks about our wealth in Christ. And in the last three chapters, he talks about our walk with Christ. And how many of you know that the wealth we possess in Jesus ought to impact 
our walk with Him. Because you and I have been given so great a salvation because you and I have experienced the transforming power of Jesus Christ. That ought to impact the way we live. And listen, we ought to live differently from the way the rest of the world lives. And so look at chapter 1 and verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now let's look and see what he prays. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you notice the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. You see it in verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power in those who believe? According to the working of His great might. Look at verse, the next verse which He worked, verse 20, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. During our time together, here's what I want you to do. I want you to see the great wealth that you already possess in Jesus Christ so that you can lay hold of the strength you need to live the Christian life, to live as a follower of Jesus. Because God has given this great wealth. I want you to see it clearly so that you can lay hold of it and begin to live in such a way where you experience the strength and power of God. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we ask that You open our eyes that we might behold truth from Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for the great wealth. Thank You for the vast resources that You've already given us, that we already possess. Help us to lay hold of these things as we follow You and live according to Your purpose. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Now, I want you to see a couple of principles in verses 15 and 16 before we unpack this prayer from the Apostle Paul. The first principle is this. Notice, faith in Christ produces a love for others. Faith in Christ produces a love for others. Look at what he says in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... Faith and love go together, right? This is the essence of the Christian life. If you have faith toward God, you're going to have a faith that expresses itself in a love for others. You went to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20. 1 John 
chapter 4 and verse 20. And here's what I love about the Apostle John, especially in his epistles. He gives us a reality check. Chapter 4 and verse 20, look at what he says. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Do you see it? Tell us what you think, John. If anyone says, I love God, but he hates his brother, he is a liar. Notice what he says. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Any questions? Faith and love go together. But the second thing I want you to notice, the second principle is found in verse 16. And you know this as you read the Bible. Thanksgiving and prayer often go together. Notice verse 16. Cease to thank for you, remembering you in my prayers. I do not cease to thank God for you, remembering you in my prayers. Turn, if you would, to Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Listen, thanksgiving and prayer go together, right? Notice what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. There it is. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thanksgiving and prayer go together. We see it in this passage. Look, if you would, at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And verses 16 and following. Look at it. When you get there, say word. Notice what he says. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Look at verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do you see how they go together? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Thanksgiving and prayer often go together in Scripture. Now we're going to consider verses 17 and following. And what I want to do is I want to help you understand three elements, three aspects of Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. And the first aspect is this. As we examine this passage of Scripture, I want you to see first the purpose of his prayer. The purpose of his prayer. Look at verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him having the eyes of your hearts, first part of verse 18, enlightened. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Here's the purpose of Paul's prayer. He's praying for spiritual 
perception. He's praying for enlightenment. He's praying that these believers could somehow grasp and hold on to the great spiritual wealth that they already possess in Jesus Christ. He's praying that they not only see with their minds, in their mind's eyes, but in their hearts, the vast spiritual wealth that already belongs to them in Christ. Here's what he's praying. He's praying that they might see with the inner man all that he said in verses 3 through 14. Look at chapter 1 and verse 3. He's praying that they'd understand in the eyes of their hearts that they would be enlightened to the fact that they are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Do you know that? Do you know that when you got Jesus, bless God, you got it all? Thank God for the riches He's given in Christ. He's praying in verse 4 that they would understand that they were chosen to be holy and blameless. God chose you, friend, before the foundation of the world. How vast is the grace of God. In verse 5, he says, listen, I want you to know that you've been adopted into the family of God as sons and daughters, and you have all the rights and privilege that children of the king have. You've been adopted as sons and daughters. In verse 6, he says, you've been accepted in the beloved. Now, I want you to listen carefully. Your acceptance, because you've experienced the grace of God, your acceptance is not based on your performance. It's based on the finished work of Christ. Aren't you glad? And when God looks at you, He sees one accepted in His Son, in the Beloved. Some of your translations say blessed. I love the way the New King James says it. It says accepted in the beloved. And that's what God's done. By His grace, He's accepted us. Not on the basis of our performance, but on the basis of Christ's finished work. Look at verse 7. You've been redeemed and forgiven. Thank God. We've been redeemed. We've been set free because of the precious blood of Christ. And because of that, we've been forgiven. Think about it. Every sin you've ever committed, forgiven under the blood, past, present, and future. Verse 10 says you've been given an inheritance. Look at verse 13. You and I have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Thank God for the comforter. Amen. Thank God for the helper. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. And listen, I want you to know Pentecostals don't have a monopoly on the Holy Ghost. You and I have been sealed with the precious Holy Spirit of promise. And all I can say is, hallelujah, what a Savior. What a great salvation we have in Christ Jesus. 
Paul wants them to grasp these spiritual realities. How many of you know that these things cannot be discerned only with the mind? They have to be discerned as the Spirit of God works in our lives. Look at 1 Corinthians 2.14. Look at what the Scripture says. For the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, nor can he know them. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. Do you see it? They're spiritually discerned. I tell my D group all the time, and listen, if you're not in a D group, you need to get in a D group. I talked to a man this morning that if I have room in my D group, we're going to invite him to be a part of that D group. Why? Because he needs to be in one. But I want to tell you, it's not just him, it's you. You need to be walking with other men or women who are following Jesus. Some way, the truth of Scripture, listen to me, must get from your head to your heart to your hand. Some way. Somehow. God's Word has to come to a place where you learn it, where you love it, and then where you begin to live it. Is that you? Transformation happens when God's Spirit works to move the truth of His Word from our heads to our hearts. And Paul prays for these believers. He's, he's praying, listen, I want you to understand the great spiritual wealth that you have in Jesus Christ. I don't want you to just understand it with your mind. I want you to understand it in your hearts. Understand it in your hearts. My freshman year at LSU was a, an amazing time. I didn't have a very a heavy course load. The curriculum that I was in was not too difficult. So I had a lot of time. I not only went to school full time, but I worked. And in my spare time, rather than goofing off, I went to the Navigators, to Crew, to the BSU, to Chi Alpha. Man, it was, it was like a kid in a candy score, you know? I learned about discipleship with the Navigators. I learned about evangelism with Campus Crusade for Christ. I learned about missions, being involved in the Baptist Student Union. I learned about passion and the working of the Holy Spirit when I was involved in Chi Alpha. My first thought for that summer after my freshman year I wanted to do missions. I wanted to take what I've learned and apply it to my life, which sounds reasonable, right? But in the providence of God, what God did was that summer I stayed in Baton Rouge. I did three things. I went to school. 
I worked and I spent time in the Word. And during that time, it was amazing. I began to process all the things that I had learned that year. And it was me and God. I didn't have a whole lot of friends in summer school. I didn't... Uh, I wasn't involved in, in campus ministry because mobilizing all the students to be involved in missions all over the world. It was me and God. And during that time, I got to process all these things I've learned. And the transformation happens when the Scriptures move from your head to your heart. It's not only the purpose of his prayer, but the second thing I want you to see is the petition of his prayer. Now listen, Paul is praying that they grasp three spiritual realities. And the first one is this, that they might know the hope of their calling. That they might know the hope of their calling. Look at verse 18b, uh, really that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. Paul is praying that they know the hope of their calling. He wants them to know the great hope that they have in Christ through the Gospel. Think about it. When we were lost without God, we had no hope. But guess what? When Christ came into our lives, we had a living hope. And we now have a living hope. We were dead in trespasses and sin. But listen, we've been made alive together with Christ unto God. By grace you have been saved. I love the way Peter says it in 1 Peter 1 and verse 3. He says, but thanks be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has given us uh, he, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And you and I as believers in Jesus have a living hope. And we need to understand the hope of our calling. Do you understand the great hope you have in the Gospel? We were dead, but now we're alive. We had no hope in the world, but now we've been given a living hope because He caused us to be born again unto a living hope, Peter says. Thank God for the great hope we have in the Gospel. See, you and I are men and women who've been made new. Aren't you glad we're no longer the same? But we've been changed. I love what 2, Peter, uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. Turn there if you would. 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's not in my notes, but uh, you might want to jot it down. What a beautiful passage on transformation. Here's what it says. 
and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now this is from the Lord who is the Spirit. We can't even begin to grasp these spiritual realities except for the working of the Spirit of God. Paul wants these believers to know the hope of their calling, but the second thing he wants them to know is he wants them to know the riches of his inheritance in the saints. Look at the end of verse 18. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in us who believe in the saints. Surprisingly, Paul is not talking about our inheritance in God. He's talking about God's inheritance in us. That's mind-boggling. To think that God would look upon you and I as part of His vast wealth he sees us as part of the riches of his inheritance not our inheritance we do have an inheritance but that inheritance is in christ and it's god's inheritance in us that he's talking about i love what warren wiersbe says what an amazing truth to think that we would be a part of God's great inheritance, that He'd look upon us as part of His vast wealth. You may not realize it, friend, but you and I are trophies of God's grace. What an amazing thought. We're trophies of the grace of God. And God gets glory, Warren Wiersbe goes on to say, from the church because of what He's invested in us. Think about all that God has invested in us. And when He looks at us, there's a trophy of my grace. It can't be explained any other way. Besides, I did it. God did it. Amen? It's not you and I. It's not us. It's Him. He gets the glory. Just like the worship song we sang earlier, God is the one who gets the glory. I want to lift my hands so high that I reach heaven. Why? To worship God because He's the one who gets the glory. We don't get the glory. God does. Thank God for His riches. And we're a part of that vast riches of God. The last thing He talks about is the power of God. Notice verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might? Now I want you to listen very carefully. All the power you and I need to live the Christian life is found in Christ. 
everything we need. All of the resources, all of the power, all of the strength, all of the power we need is found in Christ. And He wants to work in us to change and transform us so that He can work through us. Listen, you have unmatched power in Jesus Christ through the person and the power of His Holy Spirit. And that's what He's saying. He's saying that you have unmatched power that's working in you so that God can work through you as to depend upon Him. Now, it's interesting to note that in the language of the New Testament, he uses three words for power. Look at verse 19 again. He uses the word power. ESV translates power. That's a potential power. He uses the word working. That's an active power. And he uses the word might which is His mighty power. So God wants to impress upon you and I that, listen, power is available. We've got to understand it and we've got to lay hold of it. Thank God for His wonder-working power. Amen? Amen? And it's found through relationship with Christ. So he wants them to grasp these three realities. The hope of their calling, the riches of his inheritance, and the power of God. The immeasurable greatness, he says, of his power. The last thing I want you to see in this passage is this. I want you to see the power displayed in his prayer. So there's not only the purpose of the prayer, there's not only the petition of his prayer, but there's the power that's displayed through his prayer. And I want you to look at verse 20. Notice what it says. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him as his right hand in the heavenly places. Above all, rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Having put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, in the fullness of Him who fills all in all. A couple of things about this power I want you to see that Paul's, he's, he's kind of bragging on the power of God. When was the last time you bragged on the power of God? You ought to do it often, amen? We ought to be bragging about Jesus often. We ought to be sharing testimony. Hey, listen, I couldn't do it, but God did it. I couldn't do it, but God did it. Brag on His power. And here's what Paul is doing. 
Notice the implications of that power. Implication number one. Because Christ was raised from the dead, guess what? Death is no longer a grim ogre. We have victory even over death. Because Christ was raised from the dead, you and I will be raised from the dead. There's a sense in which that's already happened, right? We were dead in trespasses and sin, but God made us alive together with Christ and gave us this living hope that we've been talking about. Implication number one, because Jesus was raised from the dead, you and I will be raised from the dead. Implication number two, because Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places, guess what? One day, you and I will be with Christ in the heavenly places. Aren't you glad? And that's kind of one of those already, but not yet. So you know, Ephesians chapter 2 says that we're already, it's just as good as done. We're already seated with Him in the heavenly places. Isn't that awesome? Implication number three. Just as God put all things under the feet of Jesus, guess what? One day, all things will be under our feet. Isn't God good? Here's the best thing of all. You and I have access to the power of God. The same power that raised Christ up from the dead, the same power that seated Him at the right hand of the Father, the same power, that unmatched power that put all things under His feet. We have access to that power. Isn't that amazing? Look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Before Jesus ascended to glory, I believe He said the Great Commission to His disciples. We talked about that last week. But I love Acts 1.8. Notice what it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do you see what it says? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And listen, folks, if you don't know, the Spirit of God came upon you the moment you trusted Jesus. And if you're in Christ, when you get Christ, you get it all, including the power of God. It's a matter of us laying hold of it. It's a matter of us appropriating it. That's that fancy theological term. We appropriate God's power. In other words, we have to receive it by faith. We have to lay hold of it and believe it and act in faith 
That's why I could stand up here and preach today. I'd be a fool to come up here without God. Amen? You have access to that power. Now, this begs the question, and I want to close with a couple of questions. Why is it that so few of God's people receive His power? They have access to it. They can receive it and lay hold of it by faith. Why is it that so few have access to His power? I don't know all the reasons why, but, but here's what I do know. Perhaps the reason they don't experience the power of God and we don't experience the power of God is because our eyes have become dull to spiritual reality. What do you mean? We know it in our minds, but do we know it in our hearts? Do we know it in the inner man? Do you know that the same senses that we have physically are the same senses that the inner man has? That's what Jesus meant when He said in Matthew 13, 13, seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So it's possible to see, I, I don't see very well, but it's possible to see, but really not see. It's possible to hear, but really not hear. Why? Because he's talking about the inner man. He's talking about our spiritual inner being. It's got to move, remember what I said, from your head to your heart and ultimately to your hand. We're dull to spiritual reality. Now, the question begs to be asked, why are we dull to spiritual reality? Let me give you three reasons I believe why. Number one is because of the impact of sin in our lives. Guys, if you don't know by now, sin is insidious. What do, you, what do you mean? It deafens the ear. It dulls the taste. It it's distorts our vision. It keeps us from the best things that God has for us. So sin can dull our spiritual perception. But the second thing is the enemy can do it. And we as believers battle against three enemies. We battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And these enemies can distract us by getting us to seek after other things besides God. And could it be that we're not experiencing the best that God has for us? Why? Because we've been distracted and we've gone after other things rather than going hard after God. Just saying. Could it be? 
that we've been distracted and rather than being laser focused on who God is and His Word and spending time with Him, we've been distracted by all these things. Here's the last one and here's the tragedy. People are dull to spiritual reality because they're unaware of the wealth that they already possess in Christ Jesus. I want to encourage you, get into the Word of God until the Word of God gets into you. Allow the truth of Scripture to move from your head to your heart to your hand. And that can only happen when you spend time with God in His Word. Randolph Hearst was a great newspaper publisher of another generation. And he was very wealthy. He had his hands in all kinds of things. And one of the things that he did was he collected art. And as he looked over his collection, he said, here is a collection that I must have. If, if my collection is going to be complete, I've got to have these pieces of art. And so what he did was he got his agent to search all over the world for these pieces of art that he simply had to have. And the agent went all over the world. He went to, to England. He went to Italy. He went to Spain. He went to Greece. I mean, he, he left no stone unturned. About six to nine months later, he came back and he told Randolph Hearst, he said, listen, he said, Mr. Hearst, I found the art that you requested. And Mr. Hearst said, where'd you find it? And he said, in your warehouse. It's something you already possessed. If they would have taken time to look at the log of all his art collection, they would have known that Hearst already possessed these items. Let me say to you, read the book. Get into the Word until the Word gets into you. Wouldn't it be a travesty to know that you have all the power you need to follow Jesus and accomplish His purpose in your life, but you never took advantage of the great power that was at your disposal if you acted in faith. It's something you already possess. Would you lay hold of it and believe it?